So let's pray real quick and we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for uh, this opportunity we have to come to worship you today, to, to be in your presence, to learn about these things, Lord, that we could learn more about the, the prevailing culture that we live in, that we can see where that culture divides from your word and what, what you have revealed yourself as and your gospel. And God, we just pray that we could take this and use this information, not that we would be ones who just want to go out and show our Mormon neighbor how wrong they are, but God, that we would use this information, that we would take the things we learn, and we would use that to share your truth and your gospel with our Mormon neighbor, and that we would see them drawn to you and saved. Lord, let any zeal that we have be tempered with love, and uh, that you be glorified in all that we do. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So today we're going to talk, we're going to turn off the, the norm fire hose of information that we've gone through the last couple of classes that I taught. I don't know, Dan, I know slowed things down a little bit last week too, but um, a lot of information in the first couple weeks. We're going to slow down. We're going to look at the articles of faith and we're going to go, today we're just going to go one through seven. Next week, I'll be gone again. Dan's going to go through 8 through 13. And we're just going to break this down. And this is just ultimately, this is the Mormon statement of faith. This is what they have put out. This is what they publicized. It's in their scriptures. This is what they have given as what they believe. All 13 statements, these are, are we believe statements that the Mormon church makes. Um, and it's official because it's in their scripture. This is all stuff that they, they can't turn around and go, well, we don't know if we still teach that. You know, there's a lot of stuff that was taught by prophets and, and teachers over the years that when you bring it up to them now, they're like, well, I don't know if we still teach that. This is, this is their concrete statement of faith. So this is stuff that they can't argue with. So the Articles of Faith were uh, actually the first time they were published, the first time they were written down. These were part of a letter that Joseph Smith wrote to a man named John Wentworth, who was the editor of the Chicago Democrat newspaper in that area. And he essentially was saying here, I don't know if it was part of a, a dialogue that they had had going on between each other, but it was... Um, a letter that Joseph wrote and laid out these 13 statements. They've been slightly amended since then. Um, what we're looking at today is what the church publishes today. Uh, so, and it was just sent out and then it was the first time they were publicly put out in any kind of publication. It was in the Times and Seasons, the Mormon newspaper. So they were finally, 1942, 12 years after they had kind of established this whole thing, Joseph finally said, well, here, by the way, guys, here's what we believe. So this was where it was put out. And still, at the point in time of this being published, none of the first vision had been publicly uh, printed, talked about, any of that stuff. It was still not anything that anyone knew. The, the first vision of Joseph Smith and all that stuff was basically only known to him and a few people that he had shared this story with. So... We're going to just start, we're going to hit number one, and we'll start going down the list. Number one, article of faith, says, We believe in God, the Eternal Father, and in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. So on face value, it, it looks pretty good, right? We would say, 
much of the same thing. We believe in God, the Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, but what you got to do is now we have to start and we have to look. Five more. We have to look at exactly what those terms mean because at this point in time we have to define. We have to make. We have to know what our definitions are. And. Uh, So, we really have, we have to start defining the terms because the biggest, probably the biggest difference between, between what we look at doctrinally, but the biggest difference between us and, and Mormons is the way we define terms. We use many of the same words, but they don't mean the same thing. When you talk to a Mormon about salvation, their definition of salvation is going to be different than what our definition of salvation is because they have degrees. I mean, a Christian, we're, we're saved or we're not. Mormons, there are degrees of salvation. You can be saved. You can be, you know, bottom level of heaven. You can achieve exaltation. You can achieve godhood. All those things fall into this, this sphere, but we have to make our definitions. So first we're going to look at who is God the Father according to Mormonism. So the Mormons would say God the Father is a guy named Elohim. Doctrine and Covenants 130.22 is kind of their, their go-to verse that talks about what they think about God. And I actually, I pulled up in Mormon Doctrine what McConkie gives. And he says the, the very first thing under the heading God, there's all these other things that you're supposed to look up to. But the first actual statement, he says, there are three gods. So McConkie just lays it out right there. There are three gods. They don't believe in one. They believe in three. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, who, are, who though separate in personality, are united as one in, perfect, in purpose. Uh, then he drops down. He says, by definition, God, generally meaning the Father, is the one supreme and absolute being, the ultimate source of the universe, the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good creator, ruler, and preserver of all things. And we'll actually find out that Joseph Smith, what he taught, that's incorrect. Because they don't believe that God is the ultimate source of the universe. Because what Mormons will teach about God is you get into the King Follett discourse that Joseph Smith, Smith gave, which is kind of the big thing where Joseph just blows out all of his really weird uh, new evolution of theology. A lot of it comes out in that King Follett discourse. King Follett was a guy that died. Joseph Smith is preaching at his funeral. And that's when he just starts talking about, he starts making statements like, I've done more than Jesus even did. Jesus' followers ran from him. Mine have never deserted me. You guys have probably heard a couple of those quotes. They all come out there. But he talks about God living on a planet uh, near a star called Kolob. And uh, some people will say it's near a star called Kolob. Some say the planet is actually named Kolob. It's a confusing thing that they teach. But they teach that God was a man, just like any of us in this room, that he had to work his way to achieve godhood, to become the God over this planet, to have the right to have spirit babies and populate this world. 
Um, those things, you'll find those things in King Follett Discourse. You'll find them in, again, Doctrine and Covenants 130.22. Doctrine and Covenants 93 talks about that he has a body of flesh and bone. And you'll find, yeah. But they do believe he was created by his father. Another God. Huh? We don't know. Because they'll tell you that the Elohim is the God of this world and the only God we have to do with. And that's how they'll, that is how they, they defend their monogamy, or monogamy, uh, monotheism. Monogamy, where'd that come from? Um, we'll talk about polygamy and monogamy later. That's, that's four weeks from now. We'll, we will talk about that. But they defend their monotheism to say we're not polytheists, which McConkie just threw that out. But they'll say we're monotheists in the fact that God, Elohim, is the God of this world and the only God we have to do with. And so, but they do believe that he had a father and that he had a father before him and that he had a father before him. And then when, the, and then I just give you answers of questions that I've asked when I would say, well, how do you consider, you call him God the eternal father. How's he eternal if he was born of a spirit father and born of a spirit father? And they will say he was eternal in their loins. Which is like, well, that's kind of weird because you got a whole lot of loins to go through to be eternal to get back. But those are the things that they teach. Um, Abraham 3, 3 through 9 is where it talks a little bit about Kolob. Um, DNC 93 is where they get into the fact that he is literally the father. This is what they teach, that he is literally the father of all of our spirits. In heaven, he has at least one wife, and they'll argue, but we, as we look at what they teach about polygamy, it's obvious that there is multiple wives in heaven, and they just have spirit babies. You know, it, it sounds like, and, and I try to not be as offensive as I can, and not to say, well, they're eternally pregnant, but in reality, that's what is taught. That is, that is a woman's uh, role in the afterlife in Mormon heaven is to have spirit babies to populate their husband's planets. So that is, but he is, they teach that he's literally the father. And when we get to, to Jesus, we'll talk a little bit more of how literal they believe that the fatherhood comes to. So these are things that they teach about God the Father. He was once a man. He lived on a planet. He had to work out his salvation with fear and trembling. These are things, that, again, that they'll say. They'll use our scriptures to, to defend theirs. Which means that at some point in time, you ha they have to admit that their God may have been a sinner. If you really want to get into it, means their God has sinned at some point in time. Their God is not ongoing because Joseph said that they continue on in, in progression. And in that King Follett discourse, when Joseph talked about, he literally says, he almost quotes Satan from Isaiah. But he says, when, when I pass on, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't know the exact quote, but he says, when I pass on from this world, he says, this God, Elohim, will move on to another level in Godhood. And he says, and I will exalt myself to his throne. This is what Joseph Smith said. Lucifer says, I will exalt myself above his throne. Joseph said, I will exalt myself to his throne. 
And he, I mean, he didn't, didn't disrespect God because he said, well, he gets to go on to bigger and better things and I get to take his place, is what he said. So we get this idea of the eternal regression of gods and this polytheistic worldview that they have. Any questions on that? And well, I'll, I'll, I'll leave time at the end for questions. I'm really going to keep this short because I know the last couple of classes I've just kind of fire hosed you guys. So I want to I make sure we have time to ask questions. What do they believe about Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus, God is Elohim and Jesus is Jehovah. These are the names that they take from the Old Testament and they ascribe to God the Father and God the Son. So Jesus is Jehovah. He is the literal son of God. He is uh, spiritually his son, which means he's every single one of our brother is what they teach. And this is something that they're proud to teach. But then when you break it down, you go, so Jesus is Lucifer's brother. Well, no, that's just kind of, well, no, that's what they teach. Jesus and Lucifer were brothers. They literally teach that in the, the pre-existence, that there was this council of gods and God says, okay, we're making this planet and we're going to put some people on it. And how do we want to do this? He says, God says, I want to see if we can get them all back. And so supposedly Lucifer stands up and says, I have an idea. I'll, we'll, I'll make them all obey. They'll be perfect little, little uh, people and they'll all do perfect and they'll come back. And he says, but I want to get the glory. And then supposedly Jesus stands up or Jehovah stands up and he says, well, here, this is what we'll do. We'll send them down there. We'll give them free choice. We'll let them make their own decisions. Some of them will sin. Some of them won't. But the ones that are, are good people, they'll come back and you'll get the glory. And so supposedly God went with that. Satan gets mad. There's a big war in heaven. Satan gets kicked out with his, his angels and they go to outer darkness. And we'll get into that class later, too. So, but literally the t teaching is, is that Jesus is at least our half-brother. Because we may not have the same spiritual heavenly mother, but we all have the same heavenly father, Elohim, spiritually in our spirit. And then he is also physically the father or the son of God. And I'm going to go to, why did I not put a bookmark in here? I told myself like eight times. So, um, this is under the, the heading in Mormon doctrine, the Son of God. It says, God is the Father, God the Father is a perfected, glorified, holy man, an immortal personage, and Christ was born into the world as the literal Son of this holy being. He was born in the same personal, real, and literal sense that any mortal son is born to a mortal father. There's nothing figurative about his paternity. He was begotten, conceived, and born in the normal and natural course of events, for he is the Son of God, and that designation means what it says. You guys get the, the, the comprehension of what that verse is saying? They literally teach that Elohim came down in a glorified body, went into Nazareth, went into Galilee, had, had sexual intercourse with Mary, to impregnate her with Jesus. Okay. That's considered absolute blasphemy. We would consider that blasphemy. Because, I mean, let's just look at that from the Mormon theological viewpoint. 
now not only, I mean, we would consider that Mary is not one of God's wives. So that would be an adulterous relationship. If we look at the theology of Mormonism, Mary is, is Elohim's spirit daughter. So now we have an adulterous, incestuous relationship. And this is all attributed to God, the eternal father of doing this. So this is, this is, again, this is where the blasphemy lights start to really go off. I mean, not to say that God being a man isn't a blasphemous statement because it is. It's a heretical statement. It's a blasphemous statement. But this takes it to a whole new level. But this is what was taught. And they try to shy away from it today. You know, these, these are things that when you have these conversations, I really try to avoid these as much as I can, unless it's in like a debate setup or it's intentionally designed. For the, but when I have like a regular conversation on the street with somebody outside the temple or anything like that, I don't, I don't talk about these things because it's not helpful. It generally shuts them down. I stay to the gospel and stuff like that. So as far as, again, as far as an evangelism tool, this is great knowledge to have, but we really don't want to use this in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody you just met on the street that you're trying to share Jesus with because this will tend to shut them down. It's why I don't talk about secret underwear or any of those other things either. You know, not that I'm afraid of those conversations, but if I'm doing evangelism with somebody, I want to have a, a conversation about the gospel, about sin, repentance, and salvation. So, but this is, it is good information and it is, good to, to recognize again we talked about in the first week what is the genuine article so we know exactly what the real basis of our faith is so when we hear those scenes immediately ding 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 ding, ding this is wrong this is false this is not true yes Well, it, 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 I mean, again, it comes, they would say that the plan of salvation was there from the beginning. Jesus presented it in the pre-existence. And so it was a plan thing. You know, they would say that God knew he was going to go down. It was an intentional, you know, this is how we are going to bring in the, the Savior and provide atonement and stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, it was, it was very much pre-planned. From, from the beginning. So then when a man here, my neighbor, dies and goes and gets his own planet, uh, he will have his own choice as to how to bring about or whether to bring about the salvation of his people. So right. Jesus is simply in our planet. Our world. Yeah. So they could have, you know, any number of different ways of salvation and ways, that, I mean, maybe on another world, the Lucifer figure who said, I'm just going to make them all do right and bring them all back and, and take the glory from the God of my, maybe the God of his planet was like, sounds like a great idea. Let's do it. Right. And so essentially, I mean, it's every planet has their CEO and their corporate board and, you know, everybody's just running stuff up the flagpole, throwing it and seeing if it sticks to the wall. What other really bad corporate cliches can I throw out? Um, right. And so, but yeah, that was what was decided for this planet and any other world that any other God created could have their own form of 
uh, salvation of whatever that looks like for them. You know, somewhere, someplace, you know, heaven is you seeing nothing but a hound dog six times before you pass away and you get to hang out in the jungle room with Elvis and Priscilla for eternity. I'd be dead. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's the way they run their church. It is the exact same way. Like you have to do what they what, what they teach, or you can't come back to heaven, or you can't be back to heaven. You know what I mean? With all the rules and everything right. else that happens in the temple, etc. Yeah. It's the same and, thing. And again, yeah, that's true. They they have it's works. And again, what they would say would be, well, Lucifer's plan was to force you to do every one of those things. But now you have the choice whether to do them or not. And, and again, we have to, and we won't get into, they don't really have any specific one that talks about heaven. They talk about some salvation. But with the Mormon idea of three levels of heaven, you have the celestial, the terrestrial, and the celestial kingdoms. Everybody gets to heaven. One level or another, unless you listen to certain teachers, Brigham Young for one, Joseph Felding Smith, Hinckley, uh, Spencer W. Kimball, all taught that anybody who held the Mormon priesthood and renounced the Mormon priesthood, anybody else in here beside me fall into that category? Ken, in the back. If you held the Mormon priesthood and renounced the Mormon priesthood, you are now what is called a son of perdition. Welcome to the club, Ken. Um, and we will be among the only people in the world that will be cast into outer darkness with Satan and, his, and the demons. So, and I actually had a conversation with a guy about this Thursday night at the temple. And so I said to him, I said, Daniel, I said, you understand that what we just talked about means that when I die, I go to outer darkness. But right now, Adolf Hitler is sitting comfortable in the, in the telestial kingdom. Because he chose to take on a body, he never was LDS, he never rejected the priesthood. So he is in the lowest level of heaven, killed six million Jews, and I, because I left the Mormon church after holding a priesthood, am going to outer darkness. And that was, that was one of the things that really made him go stop and think, because I made it kind of personal with him. But so again, the understanding that Satan said, Every, I'll bring everybody back, and, but I get the glory, and Jesus said, I'll give them choice, and they'll, but yet still, everybody's coming back to one level or another. So, again, it gets all twisted up in. You have a question? Right. Well, yeah, and so according to Mormon teachings, the Telestial Kingdom, the bottom level, all the Jews that were murdered by Hitler and Hitler hanging out in this, I mean, imagine that. Uh, and, and here, and I'll, I'll lay this out there as an unpopular opinion. If in the last moments of his life, Adolf Hitler repented and put his faith in the true and living God, he'd be in heaven. I don't know. I mean, I, I've, I've said many times, same thing with Osama bin Laden, the Hitler of our generation. You know, if he repented before SEAL Team 6 knocked down his door and took him out, if he repented and put his faith in Jesus Christ, he will be in heaven. 
last minute deathbed conversions, I don't know how real or not they are. I don't, can't judge a person's heart. There may be a lot of people in heaven that we are not expecting to be there. But based on a theology that these people had to do nothing to get there, imagine being the Jew that, that Adolf Hitler murdered and then getting into heaven and then suddenly, you know, however many years after you were killed and Hitler took his own life and uh, ended up in, in the same place. I mean, I, yeah. Very interesting stuff. So, and then what you, what you have to figure, come to the conclusion is, is that of what Joseph Smith taught, another thing that they teach about Jesus is Jesus was a failure. Because of Joseph Smith's words, King Follett, when he said, I've done even more than Jesus did. His followers deserted him. None of mine have yet deserted me. This is this, this amazing statement. Next week or the week after, I'll bring the exact quote and let you guys read it and, and hear it word for word of what Joseph Smith said. But according to Joseph Smith's own statement, Jesus would have been a failure because he didn't, he failed to hold his church together. The statement that Jesus made in, in the Gospels said, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Obviously Jesus was a liar. Because according to Mormon teaching, the gates of hell apparently did prevail against it for about 1,800 years until God saw fit to find this, this young man and restore the gospel. And finally, the Holy Ghost which they really don't talk a whole lot about. All we know about the Holy Ghost really is that he is the only one of the Godhead who is not a physical being. He didn't, uh, for whatever reason, he was God's spirit child that never got a physical body. He was only a spirit being. Um, otherwise, he couldn't dwell within us is what, the, what their scriptures talk about and say. But, and then other than talking about the laying on of hands to receive the Holy Ghost after you're baptized, you don't get a whole lot of teaching about the Holy Ghost in Mormonism. At least I didn't for the time that I was a Mormon. You don't hear about him much except for when people are baptized and they're given the gift and once in a while in, in rare occasions. But he's kind of the, the forgotten member of the Godhead. And, uh, but he, yeah. No, go ahead. You got it. Figure that out. <laughs> so he could be everywhere. Yeah. So he can essentially be everywhere, but yet I still love the fact that when they when they portray him in like any kind of picture, he's just like a dotted outline. Yeah. Of a, of a physical body, but it's just a dotted outline. He's just the invisible, yeah, the invisible friend. But he can essentially be everywhere. Um, and that's why he wasn't given a physical body. No, because it's stuck in that. Yeah, it's locked in. And then, I mean, again, when we go back to our 
are there's a almost a physicality to the spirit body when you die because again they would teach that Jesus can't be everywhere that God can't be anywhere because they had bodies a, a physical bodies but the spirit somehow is is released from that so really when you look at what they teach about the pre-existence and the afterlife there is kind of a limitation to the spirit body it's it's as limiting as the physical body is except we can i guess i would assume we can walk through walls and you know whatever because we're not material but i mean they would even say that um as you listen to and it, it's hard because it, again you get into this confusing contradictive state of well it is a spirit well what is a spirit well they're they're to say that God can't be anywhere and the spirit had to be without any kind of physicality so he can be anywhere. But when we are released from this physical body, it is our spirit. Can it be everywhere? Well, no. So there's a lot of contradictions and it's hard to follow because, again, I don't think Joseph really, when he started teaching different things, he was still learning. And so, and you watch as you read through the history and the things, the evolution of the theology. It's just the same way as the evolution of the first vision. He started out with, well, I was visited by an angel. And then there was a host of angels. And then it was angels and Jesus. And then it was the father and the son. And then there's ones that say father, son, and a whole bunch of angels. And so it evolved just like the theology of who God is evolved. Okay. The Book of Mormon teaches the, the theology of you know, the, the three Godheads. Yeah. Mosiah 10, right? He teaches that God come down in flesh, yeah. In the flesh. It, it basically teaches the Trinitarian God yeah. in the Book of Mormon. Yeah. So, and then the evolution of the theology became that it wasn't a Trinitarian God. But yeah, I want to say it's Mosiah 10. Yeah. So, article of faith number two. We believe that men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. Now again, this is a statement that we could go, well, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to be judged for what Adam did, but I have a sin nature because of what Adam did. So this, is, this would be the difference between the, the two. They don't believe in original sin. Mormon church would not believe in, in that we are born in sin. I've heard many times from many different people that Mormons believe that babies are born and they're perfect. And then they start to sin. Immediately. If you have kids, you know. Immediately they start to sin. But they don't believe. They believe that kids are born perfect. Um, and that life is this test that we have to come down and we have to live this test out. So we're, we're brought here, we're, we're given the test, we, get to, we have to do good so we can pass and not fail. But again, we talked about nobody really fails except for the sons of perdition. Um, so again, this is, this is where we first start seeing the, the inclination of salvation by works. So the, the statement that it's just on you. And I remember, again, when I was baptized at eight, 
I remember the, the bishop had made a statement and, and it was weird to me. He was like, because he said, I can't remember exactly how he said it, but it was possible for me to get to this point without sin. Because we're, we're given agency, we're given, you know, we could choose. We wear our little ring that says CTR, right? Choose the right and we can get there. But then he goes, but you probably have sin. And I'm like, well, you know, thinking to myself, you have no clue, buddy. And, uh, and he took a piece of paper out and he made a bunch of X's on it. And he's like, here's the record of your sin. And again, I remember thinking to myself, I, this is a true statement. I thought to myself, you don't have nearly enough X's on that piece of paper. And, uh, and then he crumpled it up and he threw it away. And he says, next week after you get baptized and you're dunked in the water, that's all going to be washed away. And then we're going to lay our hands on you and give you the gift of the Holy Ghost. And you're going to be able to be perfect. And again, I'm going, you don't know me very well, man. Have you seen the house I live in? Yeah. So, but this is the, the belief. This is the, we're not, we're punished for our own sins, which we believe as well. Not for Adam's transgression. We just believe that sin came into the world because of Adam's transgression. Um, and that's why we have a sin nature. And we can say all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one. It's because in Adam all die. But in we can be made alive in Christ. Article of faith number three. We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Now here is the linchpin. This is, and again, I, I find it funny when I watch different uh, evangelistic com conversations. You know, when guys are out on the street and they're talking to Mormons and we get into the whole faith versus works. Are we saved by faith or saved by works? And every Christian I know goes back to James and they say this is where the Mormons come to the point that they believe faith without works is dead. And they go, this is the, the basis of Mormons teaching salvation by works. And a lot of Mormons will go, well, yeah, that's what James says. Faith without works is dead. If you don't do works, you really, don't have faith and you're not really saved. And so you have to be saved by works. This article of faith number three, this is where we should be going with, with the LDS. Because this is their official doctrine. This is their official statement of faith. And it literally says, because you'll get into arguments with guys now, that they're like, well, no, we're really saved initially by the atonement of Christ, by what he did. And then, they'll, of course, they get into the whole idea that everybody gets to go back to heaven to one level or another. That's salvation. That's what Christ did. He died once for everybody so that everybody, including Hitler and Jeffrey Dahmer and all those guys that we find reprehensible, are going to get to at least the bottom level of heaven. Okay. Isn't the problem with being saved by your works is that if you want to be saved by your works, you're going to be judged by all the law. Right. So instead of just giving it to Jesus, which I think is the way it goes, when you're, when you're saying, look what I did, God, look, I deserve heaven, he's going to look at everything. Matthew 7. Matthew 7. When Jesus says, There will be those in that day that will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? And they, they lay out and cast out demons or whatever. But did we not do these things in your name? And Jesus will respond to them, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. If you think that you can add anything to your salvation by any kind of work, 
You know, I don't know, I don't know who to attribute the statement to. I've heard people say it was Tertullian, and I've heard people say it was Spurgeon or whatever. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. If you try to add anything, Spurgeon said trying to get to heaven by your works is like trying to climb a rope made out of sand. Because that's literally what it is. But this article of faith, they literally say, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. So this is, this is a requirement. This is their statement of faith. This is where we can definitively go, you believe that you are saved by works. Even to the point, I would say, looking at this, that means even those who get to the bottom level of heaven have got to do it through some kind of obedience. Yeah. The work is done by Christ. Absolutely. So, I, I mean, there are different... I listen to Christian hip-hop, so... Uh, according to the, the, the prophet Shailin, we are saved by works. His. You know, those are the works that save us. Christ's work. And none of our own. He is our great high priest. He is the one that made intercession for all of us who will repent and put our faith in Him. He did the work. It's an oxymoron, yeah. Right. It's a good point. It literally is a contradiction in and of itself because the gospel fulfills the law. Doesn't do away with it, but it fulfilled it. Christ fulfilled the law in the gospel, so now we are not bound under the law. We are not judged under the law as those who believe in Christ. We are judged by His work. So again, there, there's one of two options. You know, when, we, when we face our Maker, it's either going to be we're going to stand there underneath our own ability, and we're going to stand before him and, and say, this is another thing I did at the temple. I was telling Logan that, that I'd never done before, but it was so effective that I will do every single time I have a conversation with a Mormon now. But I was, I was talking to this young man, Daniel, and I told him, I said, here's the deal. I said, either you're going to go to heaven and in the last day you're going to stand before God and either you will have repented of your sin and put your faith in the true Jesus Christ. And, and God is going to say, I see my son, well done, good and faithful servant. Or you are going to stand before God and you're going to say, didn't I do these things in your name? And he's going to say, depart from me, Daniel. I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. And that was obviously something nobody had taken that verse and made it specifically personal to him. 
And you could see the change in his countenance when I said that. Because the understanding that that is going to be any one of us. We are either going to stand before our maker and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, because we have put on Christ. And the only one that has truly earned that statement, well done, good and faithful servant, is Christ. Or we're going to stand there and we're going to say, didn't we do some stuff that was pretty cool for you, Jesus? And he's going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Well, we're going to get to that here in a second. Because they, now they're going to give us the first principles of the gospel. So when they say the gospel, we say the gospel, we mean the good news. For us, I mean, we're not typically necessarily saying the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or, or John. For us, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came to earth, God incarnate, went to the cross, paid the penalty for our sins so that if we repent and put our trust in him, we can be saved. Because that's great news. Yeah, we usually start with the bad news. You've broken God's law. You deserve to go to hell. Bad news helps the good news make sense. So, but that's what we refer to when we say the gospel. When Mormons say the gospel, they generally mean a whole set of laws and rules and, and all these things that are laid out in their doctrine and ordinances. That's what they mean by the word gospel. When they say gospel, they mean rules and regulations and law. Ultimately, when you, when you look at the, the definition, definitionally of what Mormons believe the gospel is, it's law. It's a bunch of rules that you have to follow in order to get to heaven. Isn't it sort of like the Old Testament? Because the Old Testament was given to the Israelites so they knew how to act. Right, right. And, and then when Jesus came, he gave us the new law that would be in our hearts. Essentially. Yeah, they're, they're essentially they're taking themselves back and putting themselves under, whether it's the same law or a different law, but they're putting themselves underneath a burden of law. And, you know, Jesus came and he, he gave us, he, I mean, he said the, the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as, your, as yourself. Those are things that as Christians we should aspire to. But again, if we have repented and put our faith in Christ, we believe that we are saved. And, you know, conversation came up just recently. I don't know how many of you follow, but saw that there was a, a pastor of a big church in California, um, Jared Wilson, that committed suicide. He was a great proponent for suicide prevention and stuff like that. And he hit a place of despondency and despair, and he took his own life. This is a man that I've heard speak. This is a man that I've seen things that he said. I haven't read any of his stuff. Didn't know him personally. But I know this man, confident in my heart, that this man was saved. And his last act on this earth was to murder himself. And there's a huge debate has gone on about whether or not he was let to go to heaven or if because he was never able to repent of that sin if he went to hell. I am of the firm belief that I repented of all my sin and Jesus has paid for my sin past, present, and future. So if I leave here today and I'm driving home and I'm going down Harrison and some guy falls asleep or is texting at the wheel and crosses over and is coming head on at me and I say a few choice foul words and I murder that man in my heart because I'm angry because he's about to kill me and I'm not able to, to repent of that sin, I believe that I will be in the presence of God when I go and I believe Jared Wilson was in the presence of God. Now again, God is the judge. He says what is what and what is not. But 
the, the fact of the matter is, is we are saved by Christ's work. And we are positionally in Him. And so we are not bound by a law. We should aspire to holiness. Right? We should want to do good things. Because of what Jesus did for us, we should want to do good things. We should want to do things like not watch pornography and not do anything else adulterous and not be angry with our brother without reason and not kill anybody or not steal from people. These are good works that we should want to do because of what Christ did for us. But none of those add to our salvation. And for those who are in Christ, no incidental sin is going to take that salvation from you. This is what I believe. Okay, we could have a, a different discussion. But again, what you have said is true. The Mormons have put themselves underneath another law. Jesus didn't give us a new law. He gave us a covenant that said, just like with what Abra God did with Abraham. We look at the two covenants. We're getting a little off, but I want to talk about this. We look at the two covenants. When God had made his covenant with Abraham, he said, you know, we cut up these bulls and these animals and we separated them. And then he caused Abraham to fall asleep. And only God passed among those, those animal parts. And it was essentially God saying to Abraham, this is a one-part covenant. You have nothing to do to be part of this covenant except for fulfill the sign and circumcise your kids. But that was just not, that wasn't what an, an activity. Usually when a covenant is made, I'm going to do this, Josh, you're going to do this. I'm, we make a covenant that you're going to buy my truck. I'm going to make sure it all works right for you. You're going to make sure you covenant to give me $3,955 for my vehicle. That's the covenant. The covenant that God made with Abraham was, I'm going to give you all this stuff, and you're going to be my chosen people, and we're not going to shake hands. We're not going to do anything. You're going to sleep while I go between the portions of the animals and do these things and fulfill the covenant. So it was a one-sided covenant. The covenant of Abraham, God says, I'm going to do this. You're just going to show the sign of it by, by circumcising your children and showing that you are in this covenant. Same thing with Jesus. Jesus says, I did all the work. You can't do anything. Jesus said, I went to the cross. I paid the penalty for your sin. I nailed that record of sin to the cross. I did everything. You do nothing but contribute the sin necessary for my death upon the cross. And, and in return for that, you should be baptized as a sign of the covenant. You should be. But even in that, why was, why was Jesus baptized? Anybody have an idea of why Jesus was baptized? He told John it was to fulfill all righteousness, right? But we, we look all, the play, all over the place, bat, be baptized for the remission of sin. Be baptized, repent of your sin, be baptized. Jesus had no sin to repent of or to be baptized. But... He tells us you should be baptized. He wants us to be baptized. It's essentially a command. But look at the thief on the cross. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. The thief wasn't able to come down and get dunked into water. Jesus was baptized for the people who can't be. Think about that. Let that resonate. Jesus did every work required and he gave us his act of obedience so that if somebody, I was the guy that I refused to be baptized for a long time. I was going to prove to everybody that I'll get into heaven without being baptized. Yeah, it, it, was, it was a weird time in my life. But had I, the day that I decided to be baptized, by, since I, had I been taken out by a bus, I would have still been okay because Jesus was baptized for that. 
So again, we look at these things and it's not that baptism is anything that saves us. It's a public declaration of, I actually had, was it, was it us having a conversation about baptism? Why do we do baptism in the church? Isn't it supposed to be a public declaration? You know, we've done baptisms out in the river before. We do baptisms in the church because it's a little bit warmer. <laughs> not much. If you've been in this horse trough up here, you know. It's not the warmest water in the world. So, let's move on because we're going to run out of time. Number four. The next three are kind of really nothing burgers anyway. There's not a whole lot of substance. It's when next week when Dan gets into... 8 through 13 that there's a little bit more substance to these these are all a lot of things that we really wouldn't have massive disagreements with except for the definition of terms so number four here's where here's where you get the the first principles and ordinances of the gospel this is what their gospel is first faith in the lord jesus christ second repentance third baptism by immersion for the remission of sins fourth laying out of hands for the gift of the holy ghost so again, something that we would not necessarily go, well, this is absolutely wrong, because we believe we need to have faith in Jesus, we need to repent of our sins, we should be baptized, we don't lay, we, we believe that the Holy Ghost comes of his own accord, we don't have to lay hands on anybody to give that to them. That's not something that any of us have control over, the Holy Ghost, yeah. That's a good question. I have no idea, and I don't know that there's anything. That was just the arbitrary number that they said, eh, eight seems like a pretty good time where kids can kind of understand. I mean, most eight-year-olds can understand when you sit down with them and go, sin, hell, repentance. Most eight-year-olds, I mean, we know five-year-olds who can comprehend that. And we know that there are some you know, people that maybe not until they're 13, 14, there may be people with the mental capacity that they never can quite comprehend that. But we believe that God covers that um, in, his, in His grace of somebody who would never comprehend what it all means. Isn't circumcision done on the eighth day of the war? Joseph Smith changed that to the eighth year. That, yeah, that's as good as an explanation as I've ever heard. So, yeah. Eight days for circumcision, eight years for baptism. Seems like a logical uh, leap. So yeah, we would not disagree with any number of these things, except for the fact that these guys say, all of this absolutely has to happen or you don't get into heaven. You don't get in. And you absolutely can't be get into the celestial kingdom. And you absolutely can't receive exaltation unless you've done every one of these things. But don't worry. Because if you don't, we'll do them for you after you're dead. We'll go ahead and we'll take care of that for you after you die. If you were baptized in this life and you weren't able to follow all these rules, we're going to go ahead and take care of that. We're going to get a bunch of teenagers to come down to the temple and we're going to dunk them for 30 different people and one of them might be you. Could be. Yeah, that's baptism for the dead. That's, that's my coffee cup. My, my letters are falling off. I, Norm, and Arthur Dunham drink this coffee for and in behalf of Blake, who is Mormon. But yeah, baptisms for the dead. You get in the tank and somebody who holds the Melchizedek priesthood stands up there and says, Norman Dunham, having been commissioned to Jesus Christ, I baptize you for and in behalf of Jose Martinez, who is dead. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then they dunk you and they bring you back up. Norman Dunham, having been commissioned to Jesus Christ, 30 times, two years in a row. 60 guys I have been baptized for the dead, all of them named Jose Martinez. 
that is not a joke, that is not an exaggeration. My, when 1989 and 1990, the two years that I went to the Denver Temple with our church group, and both years, I really, the, the second year I came in, because the first time I'm going after about 20 Jose Martinez's, you're like, come on, we got to get at least one different name in here. No. Only thing that changed on the screen as they went up was the death date and the, or the birth date and the death date of these different guys. Because again, they're doing, most of the time for your ancestors, you're going to go do your own work for your ancestors. You do that genealogy research, you find those people, and you go to the temple to do it. For people who don't have that, for people who just, there are a lot of people in the LDS church that just love to do genealogy and just love to find names of people who have died so they can do, that's what the teenagers do. And so they gave a bunch of names. So being in Colorado, where in the you know, mid-1800s, because that's what all the dates on there were, um, there was obviously a lot of Hispanic people who lived in the area. There's still a lot of Hispanic people who live in that area. And so there were a lot of dead guys named Jose Martinez, and I just got to be baptized for them. What's interesting is that Deuteronomy teaches that we're not supposed to mess with the Right. And so there they are, Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's almost a form of necromancy. So, but that's, you know, again, you have these things. These are the rules you're supposed to follow. But if you don't happen to follow them, we'll do them for you when you're dead. Even eternal marriage and stuff like that. Yeah, the Anti-Defamation League came at the LDS church and said, take all the names of all the Jews from the Holocaust off of your rolls. Because this is another thing that they do. When you're baptized for these dead people, they get added to the Mormon membership. At least in some way, shape, or form. And I, I don't believe that they're literally inflating their numbers. The 16 million members that they claim today, I do believe are living members of their church. But those dead people are on a roll. I, I, I'm assuming they've got rolls of dead people as well that have been in their church or added to, which is probably a far greater number. But, but yeah, it's uh, interesting. Number five. We believe that a man must be called by God by prophecy and the laying on of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administer the ordinances thereof. Now, here again, I think Joseph gave this not thinking that the church would be 16 million members worldwide. Because he literally, for the first little bit, the only people that were allowed to be given the priesthood were people that he personally had revelation from God that said, this guy gets to be a Melchizedek priest, this guy gets to be a Melchizedek priest, and this is what this is literally saying. Well, we know that today... Not everybody who is called to administer the ordinances of the, the Mormon church are called by prophecy. They're not, I mean, the, Nelson isn't up there just ra rapidly firing out the names of people that God is telling him can hold the priesthood. If you are a worthy male member above the age of 18, you've gone through the Aaronic priesthood, you can, be, you can hold the Melchizedek priesthood and administer the ordinances of the gospel. You have to do it. 
Okay, so there may be where the, the prophecy comes from. It's a prophecy through the state president. I don't know. But when Joseph wrote this, it was literally him. He was the guy receiving all the prophecy for people who got to be Melchizedek priests. This is one of the most blasphemous things they have. Because you're basically saying you need to be Jesus. Right? Yes. Essentially. Yeah. Essentially. What's that? It means that they believe that, that baptisms and things like that can only be done by people who have a priesthood authority. So just like the priests of the Old Testament, Aaron and his descendants and the Levites, held a priesthood. And they were the only ones who could do perform sacrifices and be the mediator. They believe that men now can only do these ordinances, do baptisms, marriages, things like that, laying on of hands. Only men who have the authority of the priesthood can administer those. So they would say also that you know, any baptism that I do is, is not valid because I don't have a priesthood authority. And so even though Jesus essentially says, and through Hebrews, it says that the priesthood is no longer needed because we have a great high priest forever, excuse me, after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, and that word forever, he is a, a priest, priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. That literally means that the Greek word there is untransferable. It, mean, it means it can't be transferred. Nobody can take the Melchizedek priesthood from Christ because he is a priest of the order of Melchizedek forever. So there never needs to be another one because he's it. And we no longer need a neurotic priesthood because it was the lesser priesthood. And those were the men who, I mean, your Catholic priests would probably fall into a level of Aaronic priesthood because they think they have to be a mediator between God and man. Where Jesus says, I'm the only mediator, I'm the only priest you need. Like Ken says, they put themselves back under a law, and with a law, you need a place where you can perform these ordinances that are required. In order to do any kind of ordinances in the temple, you have to hold the priesthood. When I was given the Melchizedek priesthood, the guy gave it to me, gave me a paper, went back all the way back to Jesus, to Joseph Smith. So that had a, a line of, of uh, who got after Joseph Smith, who got after that, who got after that. So there was a line of progression to me. Right. Which I thought was kind of neat. Um, now I'm alone. Right, exactly. At the time, I thought that was kind of neat. It showed a line right back to Right back to, yeah. Exactly. So yeah, again, only, and they require a temple because you have to have a place for these to happen. Well, I would say that's probably something, but uh, again, Article of Faith number eight that Dan's going to start with next week, that's their answer for that. Because again, they believe the Bible to be the Word of God in as much as it is translated correctly. So chances are in a lot of the places where we point out things, 
the, the response is going to be, well, that might not be translated correctly. How do you know that's right? How do you know that's what it says? So, okay, we've got zero minutes left, so I'm going to hit these last two. Number six, we believe in the same organization that existed in the primitive church, namely apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so forth. Okay, again, here's not a really weird statement except for the fact that they put apostles before prophet, and now they've, they've taken those. That's not a really big deal, but now they put prophets before apostles. And in all my time in the Mormon church and all you guys who were, were former LDS, how many of you ever had a pastor? How many of you ever met anybody with the title of evangelist? So they claim this, but they don't do it. They, they have apostles and they have prophets and they have teachers. Uh, they're 14 to 16 year old boys in the Aaronic Priesthood. That's the office of teacher. And those are the guys that get to prepare the sacrament on Sunday morning. And after it's all done, we get to go back in the room and all the bread that's left over, we get to ball it up into one great big ball and we get to eat it. All the 14 to 16 year old boys are back there eating the, uh, the leftover body of Christ. I know, I promise you it's true. And number seven, we believe in the gift of tongues, prophecy, revelation, visions, healing, interpretations of tongues, and so forth. <clears throat> now again, there are rumors, I've never seen anything concrete, that in the very early church, in the very early Mormon church, that they spoke in tongues like Pentecostals do today. There are a couple of things that I read that people said there was glossolalia, which is the, the ecstatic tongues that they did. I've never heard any of it. My time in the Mormon church, I never saw tongues practiced in that way. What they would say the gift of tongues is, and I firmly believe mostly today the gift of tongues is being something where if I were suddenly found myself in Mexico and I were trying to preach the gospel and I know zero Spanish except for bad words because I grew up in Pueblo, Colorado. Um, but I start speaking, and I think the way that the, the tongues happened in the book of Acts was the apostles were speaking in Aramaic. They were speaking in their language, but all the people were hearing them in a different language. God was translating those words into the native languages of those people, and the interpretations of tongues would be the exact same thing. I'm not, I, I won't say that I completely reject any tongues of angels or ecstatic tongues, I just don't see the validity of it. And most of the time when it's used, I don't see an interpretation immediately. At a whole church, of, when I pastored a vineyard church, which is very Pentecostal, um, at a, the first time I got up as, as I had taken over as a senior pastor, and someone in the congregation spoke out really loud in tongues, and I walked up, I was like, well, okay, I have to do this. So I walked up to the pulpit and I said, okay, we're gonna wait for an interpretation. All right, well, there's no interpretation. That's between you and God. Let's move on. And I had people angry with me. So you, the gift of prophecy, according to Mormonism, is really reserved for the president. But then you can get personal revelation, stuff like that. Um, don't hear a lot about he, visions except for, um, you know, these, these wonderful experiences that people have in the temple. You'll hear a lot of stories about people having visions then. Healings, you know, they do believe that they'll bring the, the missionaries in and pray for blessing, give a blessing and, and stuff like that and pray for healings, interpretations, tongues, so forth. 
So again, this is a statement that we don't see really played out to that extent, but it, it's not something that we go, well, you know, this isn't one of the big things that go, this separates the two of us. So those are Articles of Faith 1 through 7. Um, any questions? Any comments? Snide remarks? <laughs> All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Uh, just for the ability to gain some knowledge about our Mormon neighbor. And again, God, we ask that, that this not be just gotcha information. This is not what we want to just take to go, you guys are wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. But we want to be able to incorporate this knowledge into our desire to share the gospel and share the truth with them and to see them truly saved, to come to know who you really are, your, who you have revealed yourself to be through your word, and that we could share that truth with them and that your spirit would draw them to you and that you would regenerate them, you would, renew, you would transform them by the renewing of their mind and that they would become true believers in you, Lord. And we pray that that, that is what we take and we use this information for. And when ultimately it is all for your glory, Lord. And it's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. So again, I will... Uh,